This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, mid-1990s mass incarceration has revealed itself to be a brutal state of oppression that has no interest in rehabilitation and a laser-like focus on punishment and vengeance. Liberals and conservatives alike, at times even working together, in an attempt to make justice less brutal, have developed reforms like fewer prisons and more cops and fewer inmates through electronic monitoring and always depending on expanding use of technologies of surveillance. But each and every reform seems to contribute to a reinforcing of the prison system and the continued criminalization of and control over people of color. It's as if the problem of prisons is believed to be the buildings themselves and not the imprisonment. We'll talk prison, the reforms that end up hurting prisoners, and prison abolition in a few when we have. Returning to the show, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law are co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. Maya was on This Is Hell back in 2014 to discuss her then-just-published book, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Follow Maya on Twitter, at Maya Shenwar. Victoria is a freelance journalist and as well as the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, Concrete Ways to Support Families in Social Justice Movements and Communities. Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find about out about at booksthroughbarsnyc.org. This is Victoria's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show most recently back in June of 2017 when we spoke with her about her writing that had just been posted. Investigation, corporations are profiting from immigrant detainees' labor. Some say it's slavery, which she had written for in these times. You can follow Victoria on Twitter at LVickyML. That's L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question from L is... So where do you see yourself in five years? So where do you see yourself in five years? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can help out completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And we now have three different styles of face masks to choose from. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to either of us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner alex how our listener is answering this week's question from hell where do you see yourself in five years where do you see yourself in five years jesse w says drifting on a piece of driftwood in the <laughs> south china sea where I befriend and eventually fall in love with a mermaid, and we have children, but they have half a tail and one leg. Mark C. says, wondering if after the 10th time Trump is impeached, whether he'll finally be removed from office. (laughs) Benjamin C. says, still waiting on that Carpenter's reunion. Chris H. says, in a thriving (laughs) communist society where all the workers share the abundance of our labor and the rich are at the bottom of Lake Michigan in their concrete shoes. (laughs) Ha ha, JK. (laughs) Ed F. says, with a new kidney, healthy and enjoying retirement. What? A fella can dream, can't he? Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? Luke H. says, still trying to answer this question. 
Jacob J says, probably a slightly worse version of where I currently find myself. <laughs> Uh, it's optimistic to say uh, slightly worse. Steve K says, in one of the hastily dug mass graves already inundated with seawater. All right, let me like that one. <laughs> uh, finally, Nora P says, elsewhere. <laughs> I kind of like that. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. We weren't able to get through all of listener feedback yesterday, so let's get caught up on your comments, suggestions, criticism, both constructive and destructive, that you have emailed to us, DM'd us via Twitter, or messaged us through Facebook. Joshua sent an email saying, Hi, Chuck and Alex. It's been a few years since I've written. I remain very thankful for the show and now the Patreon podcast as well. It's only getting harder to read everything that I'd like to, and it's great to have your interviews to keep me engaged when I can't engage with the texts myself. I did recently read this Medium piece and think it would be great if you could have Esperanza Fonseca on the show. Joshua then sends a link to the article, A Socialist, Feminist, and Transgender Analysis of Sex Work, which looks absolutely fascinating. Joshua adds, I found reading the piece side by side with the Red Canary and DSA statement, Rights Not Rescue, has helped me better see the tensions in the question of what can and must be done now with respect to laws like SESTA-FOSTA, the controversial sex trafficking law that many see as another attack on sex workers. These tensions make it hard for me to wholly agree with either piece, but I'm far more, uh, I'm far more often seen writing aligned with the DSA piece Several past This Is Hell guests like Molly Smith aligned with the latter, the latter perspective as well. Anyway, I just think Esperanza Fonseca's piece and its abolitionist language troubles the more elegant notion that we should simply support full dis- decriminalization of sex work in order to elevate sex workers' rights as workers. While there is a shared struggle for a future without bad work, this piece made me realize how my impulse for solidarity had led me to unify all bad work while uncritically passing over the historical materialist and systemic analysis of prostitution. As not all bad work is bad in the same way, I think we need these kinds of readings, and it's certainly hellish to account for them. Best, Josh. We really appreciate the suggestion, Joshua, because we have been wanting to get back to covering sex work. We've done a lot on the show. Whenever we do, we get incredible responses and enthusiasm from listeners for more on the topic. So thanks again, Josh. Really appreciate you reminding us and really appreciate the suggestions. Mika suggests Isabella Wilkerson as a guest, writing she is going to be busy, I think. If you can get her, all she can do is say no, right? If she does look into your show, she will find that your interview subjects pretty much universally rave about how you do your thing, the fact that you actually read their books and then let them talk, etc. They seem generally and deeply appreciative in the way that you help them get their ideas out there, and for a good reason. It's it's worth a shot. I have a habit of sending off, uh, Mika writes, I have a habit of sending off emails to people you would think I have no business emailing, and sometimes, just sometimes, hearing back. Noam Chomsky the late 1990s, for instance. I think I'm going to do that here and send her or publisher or whatever an email praising your show and asking her to watch out for an invite and encourage her to do it. I assume that's okay with you. Mika, go ahead. Go nuts. Fine. Whatever. Mika wants us to have Isabella Wilkerson on the show because she is the author of the new book, Cast the Origins of Our Discontent. Mika emailed us Saturday, and Wilkerson's book, Cast, got a rave review on the front page of the Arts section in yesterday's, Wednesday's, the New York Times, a review which said it was one of the most important nonfiction books ever. So hat tip to Mika for beating the Times on cast. 
See, we told you our listeners have the best guest suggestions. Sinetta emailed us again from Dakar, Senegal, writing, Hey, Chuck, now you have tennis elbow? You're just falling apart, my friend. Send me your address, and I'll put together a package of African stuff for you. You'll be amazed at how much better you'll feel in a month or so if you take it like you're supposed to. Sinetta and anyone who wants to send us anything, <laughs> our address is at thisishell.com under contact, but it is this is hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Sinetta continues, as for my suggestion, you may have had her on already. I tried to search her name on the podcast, but for some reason the search wasn't functioning for me. I googled Nancy Eisenberg on This Is Hell podcast because I don't want to look like an idiot if you already had her, but I didn't see anything come up, so I'm going to suggest Nancy Eisenberg, whose book White Trash is a seminal piece of actual research on the origins of white people in America and where the idiots come from. Everyone studies black Americans and the effects of racism and political and social terrorism perpetrated by the white trash, but no one really studied them. Well, she did, and it's a fascinating subject, Senator writes. I audio read the book a couple of years ago and happened to come across a lecture by her on YouTube today before tuning in to catch a podcast of your show. Here's a link to a bunch of videos and interviews she did when the book came out. With rednecks coming out of the woodwork, now the information she shares with the reader is invaluable. Oh, I love the podcast with Professor Gerald Horn, by the way. Picked it at random and heard the shout-out, too. Brilliant, LOL. Take care, and I will send an African herbal care package if you promise to take everything I send. I promise, Sinetta. Sincerely, Sinetta, a.k.a. Senegal Style. We tried to get Nancy Eisenberg on the show several times, Sinetta, but when her book was out, she was in such high demand that we just couldn't get in that line. And then she didn't wind up do any more appearances because of burnout, and we were only doing the shows on Saturday mornings. So if she's doing interviews again, we'll try to get her on the show because I've read only great things about her book, White Trash. We also got a book in the mail. See, I told you we should send, you guys should send us stuff in the mail. I'm even going to talk about this book we got in the mail. The book is Understanding the War Industry by Christian Sorensen, which has blurbs from past guests Andrew Coburn and Richard Falk. Christian actually sent us a lovely card which reads, Dear Chuck, I recently found your show and am psyched at how prolific you are. I have so much to learn, so I am grateful for your hard work educating the public. I wanted to give you a copy of my book in hopes that down the road it could help create the progressive society we all need. Christian. Thanks for the copy of your book. Again, Understanding the War Industry by Christian Sorensen. If Andrew and Richard endorse it, more than likely it's pretty good. So, yes, we will be following up on Christian's suggestion of maybe having him on the show. We got another guest suggestion yesterday. This one was from Barry, who writes, This book looks hellish. Would love to hear Chuck interview the author. Barry then sends a link to... Hitler's True Believers, How Ordinary People Become Nazis by Robert Galady, which sounds sadly, very sadly, to be timely, very timely. According to the Oxford University Press webpage for Hitler's True Believers, rather than dismissing socialism as a disingenuous label Hitler had supposedly chosen for tactical gain, the book argues that we must take the nationalism and the socialism seriously. The author apparently warns us that yes, loyalty can be bought in many ways, and some may seem innocuous and end up with Hitler. 
Finally, we got an email from Musa, who writes, Hello, Chuck. My name is Musa, and I'm writing on behalf of a fledgling land cooperative in Ireland called the Affinity Collective. Our goal is to create and promote cooperatives as a model for surviving and thriving as left-wing communities under modern neoliberal capitalism. We're trying to set up our first project on, as a broad living project that also hosts space for gatherings and provides resources such as a citizen science lab, a recording and print, printing studio, recycling and upcycling facilities, something we like to call dumpster sciences, and permaculture rewilding. We have a GoFundMe to try and get together the last bit of money we need to acquire the land to do this project as well as purchase the equipment we need to begin these projects here and would love to get a shout out from you. We would also love to do an interview on your show if you're up to it. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Musa. Well, Musa, we are going to look in your organization a little bit more, see what you guys are up to. You should check out the interview that we did on Citizen Science earlier this year, which I think you can search on at our website, thisishell.com, for Citizen Science, and you might be able to find that interview there. Uh, but if you want to, if our listeners want to help out Musa and Ireland's Affinity Collective, go to GoFundMe and search on, it's kind of long, Queer Run Radical Housing and Permaculture Co-op. That's Queer Run Radical Housing and Permaculture Co-op to support a model for left-wing communities struggling under modern neoliberal capitalism. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. You can DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio or message us via Facebook's messenger at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on This Is Hell, it's time to rethink prison incarceration, and how we understand freedom, and more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, so where do you see yourself in five years? So where do you see yourself in five years? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing as Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Prison reformers, even those who are well-intentioned, can sometimes come up with reforms that do nothing to help prisoners or the oppression of imprisonment. And always they seem to fall for some entrenched belief that prison and incarceration are inevitably necessary. Here to help us understand prison and prison form reform in a new way. Returning to This Is Hell, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law are co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Maya. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's Maya, good to be here. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. Maya was last on back in 2014 to discuss her then-just-published book, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Maya is the co-editor of the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? And welcome back to This Is Hell, Victoria. Thanks for having us, Chuck. Victoria is a freelance journalist as well as the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, Concrete Ways to Support Families in Social Justice Movements. You can find out about more about Maya by going to truthout.com. And Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find out more about at books through bars nyc.org. 
org. Let's start with you, Maya. Michelle Alexander writes in the foreword, Prison by Any Other Names investigates the kinds of reforms that initially appear to be a step in the right direction, but are in reality leading us somewhere we don't ever want to go. Unfortunately, many of the alternatives to incarceration being embraced today will likely worsen the lives of the very people and communities that many reformers aim to help. In my view, Michelle writes, most concerning is the rapid spread of technological fixes to our supposedly broken system. In our zeal to make some progress in the fight against mass incarceration, many well-intentioned reformers are wittingly or unwittingly converting homes, neighborhoods, and entire communities into high-tech digital prisons. Maya, where do you see fault in the reasoning that leads one to want to reform policing, reform justice by creating a surveillance state? What explains supposedly a very well-intentioned reformer's belief that mass surveillance is somehow a solution to the problems of mass incarceration? So I think that we have to look at the logic beneath some of these reforms and think about how that's translating into what they look like in practice. So instead of shrinking the system, a lot of these reforms are operating in terms of replacement. So they're saying, if we can't put so many people in a cage called prison, we have to find a different kind of cage to put them in. So what Michelle Alexander is referring to for the most part is that there's been a real expansion of electronic monitoring over the past decade and a half. And basically electronic monitoring means house arrest, putting an electronic shackle around someone's ankle and forcing them to stay inside, aside from pre-approved departures. In 2005, we had 53,000 people on electronic monitoring around the country. And then recent estimates have actually put it around 200,000 people. So this is rapidly expanding. And I think that what people sometimes don't understand about this type of surveillance is that it's actually a type of confinement. People on monitors need to get pre-approved permission just to leave the house. And it often isn't granted. So people are sometimes faced with an inability to get emergency medical care, to visit friends and family, to go grocery shopping, just the most basic things. One person we interviewed said she couldn't even take the garbage out, which was at the end of her housing complex. And of course, many people prefer electronic monitoring to prison because you're at home, but that doesn't mean that it's good. And I think that this is one of the things that we have to get our head around, that just because something might be slightly better than the institution called prison doesn't mean it's good. It's still oppressive. It's still a form of a cage. The penalty for violating electronic monitoring is often reincarceration, jail or prison. And so it actually becomes a driver of incarceration in many cases because it's so easy to violate the terms of electronic monitoring and so very often people are sent right back to incarceration. And plus, this is still a, a form of confinement that's built on a foundation of white supremacy. So it hasn't challenged any of the roots of the system of incarceration, which Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. 
it hasn't challenged those roots. So we still see these things playing out like in Cook County, where I live, where Chicago is, 70% of people on electronic monitors are Black, although Black people are 24% of the population. So the roots haven't changed. The system hasn't changed. We're replacing one cage with another. So, Victoria, um, the other thing about uh, home mon- home arrest and monitoring is it's cheaper than running an entire prison, more cost-effective, too. How much, if any, impact does the fact that making our homes into the prison, that it's cheaper and running prisons leads to reformers embracing this kind of surveillance state? Are reformers either seduced by or revealing a prioritization of cost in their reforms? In some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. So we do have to remember that as especially now during the coronavirus pandemic, but even before that, uh, state budgets and local budgets were ballooning under the staggering costs of keeping people in physical jails and prisons because you not only are paying for food, utilities, uh, the pe- the salaries of the people who guard them, the benefits uh, that come with employing people to guard them and run the prison and all of the expensive overhead. And you can whittle all of those away if you can place them on an electronic monitor and have them be at home. So you're suddenly not paying for dozens of prison staff or jail staff to guard them. You're not paying for the overhead and everything else. And so we were seeing jurisdictions turning to electronic monitoring, not necessarily to decrease jail populations of people who are deemed scary or threatening, but people who might otherwise have been told that they could go home otherwise and await their day in court at home. But now instead of awaiting their day in court at home and told to just return in three weeks, people were told to uh, go home with an electronic monitor on them and in some cases, they would have to pay the county or the electronic monitoring company a daily or weekly fee for this supposed privilege of being able to await their day in court at home. So part of it is cost savings, but part of it, too, is just this idea that you could put people under some sort of coercive control, whereas in the past you might not have put them under any sort of supervision or surveillance at all. We've seen this uh, with the coronavirus pandemic in jails and prisons, where in Cook County, Chicago, where Maya is, and also in Wisconsin and other jurisdictions, judges were ordering people to be released from jails, which were coronavirus hotspots, not on their own recognizance or with a set of conditions that would just say uh, you're not allowed to have contact with your alleged victim or you must be home by this time, but ordering them to be released on electronic monitoring. And that meant that when Cook County ran out of devices, people just stayed in coronavirus-filled jails until a device became available, even though a judge had said that they should be released. So what we're seeing is an expansion of the ways in which the state can put more people under control and a widening of the carceral net, in addition to the local jurisdiction or the state being able to save a few pennies here and a few pennies there. Sure, that's about cost saving. Let me just follow up on that with you, Victoria. Is this mm-hmm. also is this also about, about uh, profiteering? Is this are monitors an outcome of market solution and privatization of prisons? 
It, if we look at the costs of monitoring and the privatization, uh, BI, for example, which is one of the largest electronic monitoring companies, was bought by Geo Group, one of the largest private prison companies in the world, and uh, actually has the contract to uh, put electronic monitors on people who would otherwise who might otherwise be in ICE detention. But what we're seeing, we should look at it as not these companies are driving mass incarceration, but these companies are finding ways to profit off of mass incarceration. There is a giant ballooning system of carceral control, whether it be physical prisons that a private company like Geo Group runs or electronic monitoring, which is something that BI has a large market share of. And then these are companies that say, how can we feast at this trough and how can we continue to make sure that people get funneled through? So you see them uh, lobby for more punitive restrictions and more punitive laws and uh, uh, ordinances that criminalize more and more people. And you're seeing jurisdictions and politicians who don't want to be seen as soft on crime buying into this logic of, yes, people need to be under some sort of coercive control instead of what are the underlying needs that people need in order to not be caught in a criminalized web. So it is much easier uh, it is a much easier solution from a political standpoint and a market standpoint to slap an electronic monitor on somebody or to place them in a jail and perhaps sentence them to prison than to look at the underlying causes of why somebody might have done something that was illegal in the first place. Maya, you were touching on how free you really are when you are under house arrest, when you are on a monitor. What happens to the concept of home once one is on a monitor and under house arrest? For instance, have you ever found those who have been under house arrest to have a desire to, you know, like once off their monitor to move because they now think of that house, that structure as a prison? So what happens to your concept of home when it does become a prison? Well, I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind around these questions is that very often the person on monitoring is not the only one in that home. Very often people have children, have partners, and those people are often affected. And so the whole concept of home is shifted for many different people. And particularly one of the things that we heard and one of the things that we continually see in the research is the way that children are impacted by monitoring. So for example, people with young children, of course those children will start questioning, will start asking like, what what is happening? Why can't my mother take me to the park? We, Several of the people we interviewed actually spoke about not being able to take their children to school, to the park, just the most basic things that you think about doing with your child. And beyond that, it really bred a sense of fear in children. So a number of studies will talk about how children would get scared and start crying every time the monitor made a beeping sound, which is, which is very common, and say, wait, is daddy going to be taken back to jail? Or 
is mommy going to be separated from me? Like, this is the type of thing that children become alert for. Many times children start acting out in school, doing the kinds of things that you do when you're constantly in fear. So not only does it turn home into a place where the person being monitored is constantly in fear, it turns it into a place where those those around them are very aware that this is not just home anymore. We're not the only people here. There's also this constant eye of the state basically infiltrating this space that ordinarily would be, you know, kind of sacred and private and and at least your own. And I think another thing that that we talk about in our book is just the psychological shift that happens when you know that every move you make could violate you basically, you know, and put you, put you in a position where some of the most worst, some of the worst punishments imaginable can be inflicted on you. And, and I'm talking about jail and prison, of course. And so I think, I think sometimes the system is perceived as a blessing or a gift. Hey, look, all you have to do is sit around at home instead of being thrust into a cage and a dungeon. But really, it's it's just reshaping what the home is and what your mindset is on a day-to-day basis. And I think that we can see this in the number of people who are actually sent back to prison from monitoring. So the the story that opens our book in the first chapter is that of Colette Payne, who's from Chicago. She was a mother of two when she was put on her monitor. And she ended up going back to jail. And it was partially a sense of, you know, just desperation and confinement and isolation that drove her back to the addiction that initially got her arrested in the first place. And we see this playing out again and again, that it's not just that the terms of confinement are very restricting and it's so easy to violate them. It's also the psychological impact of the monitor. And you can also extend this to probation, I think, which is the most common alternative to incarceration the psychological impact of all those restrictions and the way in which you're just not able to live the life that you want to live. So it's much, much more difficult to get a job, which is something that you might be able to get pre-approved permission to, to go to. It's, it's very hard to get a job in the first place if you're on a monitor or on probation it's, it's hard to do these basic things that we try to do to build a meaningful life, which is ultimately one of the most important things you need to prevent you from going back into jail or prison. So I think these are some of the things that we need to look at in terms of just concrete impact on people before we jump to the conclusion that the alternative to incarceration must be a type of surveillance. 
Maya, let me follow up on that, because in your book, you write how in 2005, your sister was arrested and sent to juvenile detention for a drug offense. Over the next 14 years, she served seven more sentences in jails and prisons, all for offenses related to her heroin addiction. Uh, is monitoring the and house arrest, is that the state abandoning the entire concept, the entire idea of rehabilitation altogether and leaving justice as nothing but a system of punitive vengeance? Or is this more so the state actually working in opposition to rehabilitation, not even allowing the prisoner to have access to drug treatment, which is a key part of rehabilitation as drug addiction is a main driver of recidivism? So is monitoring the state just essentially admitting to abandoning any concept of rehabilitation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a neoliberal measure. Like, it's it's casting aside the idea that the responsibility of the state should in any way relate to support or resources. So obviously, we're not advocating for people to be incarcerated so that they can have shelter and food and healthcare and all those things. But at least on paper, those things are responsibilities that that prison is supposed to provide for people when when they're incarcerated. And of course, on monitoring, none of those things are provided. In fact, you're paying the state for your own confinement. And I think that one of the things that I noticed when my sister was on monitoring and also earlier when she was on house arrest without monitoring is that the opportunities for rehabilitation for her actually shrunk. So she could not just go out to go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting if she was feeling the urge to use drugs or alcohol, which is one of, for many people, the basic techniques that's offered by our society is like, oh, there are these free meetings everywhere that you can go if you're feeling an impulse to use. So she couldn't just go do that. And also she was sitting around at home all the time without any of these resources or opportunities for support and feeling bored and desolate. And of course, those are some of the things that that fuel addiction. And meanwhile, I think sometimes the state will prescribe what it thinks you need to do to recover from an addiction. And this is another thing that we talk about in our book in terms of court mandated treatment. And I believe that at least the second time she was on monitoring, one of the only things that she could leave the house for was this court mandated drug treatment program, which not only was ineffective, but the main the main goal of it was to kind of test you for drugs and open up the possibility of you going back to prison every time you were tested. So she was tested very regularly, even though she could rarely leave the house for anything else. And the idea was that this this testing was a test to see if she would be going back to jail. And so, it's, I think it does kind of really feed into this idea that, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore told us during an interview for our book, the only legitimate purpose of the state is defense. So it's defense against 
people who might be breaking its laws. So basically what she was being monitored for and quote unquote supported in was not breaking laws and and it had nothing to do with the actual treatment or provision of resources that would lead toward a sustained recovery. We are speaking with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. You can find out more about Maya by going to her website, mayashenwar.com. And you can find out more about Victoria at her website, victorialaw.net. Victoria, following up on what Maya was saying and what you write about uh, as well in your book, it's not just that uh, addiction, drug addiction rehabilitation is almost, you know, it's it's almost off limits to people who are in monitoring, even though they can have it. It's not just if you have mental health issues that you might not be able to have access to the assistance that you need uh, when you're on monitoring. However, when you are in prison, there are rehabilitation sites within prisons. There are now mental health prisons. And all I can think of when I was reading that in your book, uh, Victoria and Maya, but uh, this question is going to Victoria, is how good of a job can you do in rehabilitating somebody with a drug addiction or somebody who has mental health issues when they're still in a site of punishment? It's not like the punishment goes away. It's just a drug rehabilitation center that's in a prison. It's just a mental health prison. So, Victoria, how effective can the rehabilitation that's necessary to end the recidivism of drug addiction that when it comes to prison, uh, the necessary help that people might need when it comes to mental health issues. How successful can you be at that kind of rehabilitation within a prison? Not very successful at all, actually. I mean, what we're seeing is drug, re- uh, drug programs and supposed mental health programs in prisons, and then we're seeing a star- uh, an alarming shift in also lockdown drug treatment centers and lockdown mental health treatment centers on the outside as well. But in either case, you're forcibly confining somebody. You're ripping them away from their family and their community. You are putting them in a locked in place where they are not allowed to leave. The doors only open one way. So the guard or the nurse or the security staff can let you in or out, but you cannot open the door yourself to go in or out. Uh, You have limited, if any, contact with your support network, so family, friends, community. And we see that at least for drug treatment and drug misuse, strong relationships are among one of the most significant motivating factors to curb drug misuse. And tearing people away from family members, friends, loved ones, their roles in the community actually decrease people's uh, ability to maintain strong relationships and have that motivation to say, you know what, my my drug use is impacting my ability to be there for my children, for my significant other, for my parents who may need help, or for my my siblings who may be struggling, or it's impacting my ability to, say, be the little league coach or to be the literacy tutor at the local library. And these are things that are important to me. And I want to continue being there for my loved ones in my community. But when you pull somebody away from that support system, there is less motivation. And instead, all you're doing is punishing them. And oftentimes, 
these programs don't address root causes of why people are uh, using illicit substances or root causes of what is happening that is causing mental health crises and issues in their lives. So it doesn't necessarily address root causes such as trauma and violence that have happened in their lives that has never been addressed. And instead just basically says, don't do this, don't do drugs, or take this pill, or go to this therapy session that will teach you that when you are angry, you should rip some pages out of a coloring book, but will never actually address, why are you so angry? What are the reasons that suddenly you are filled with rage or filled with sadness or can't get out of bed some mornings? What happened to you that is having you do this? And what can what can be done to support you in moving through and past that trauma? So these programs don't actually do this. And then inside prisons, we also have to remember that these programs are very scarce and they are subject to all of the prison rules and restrictions. So during the coronavirus pandemic in jails and prisons across the country, programs stopped. People were either locked in their cells or locked in their housing units 23 to 24 hours a day, supposedly to stem the spread of coronavirus. And that meant that people, the handfuls of people who were able to access drug treatment programs or some sort of mental health counseling or group therapy suddenly were unable to do so for a period of time that is indefinite because there is no, the programs will start after three weeks of lockdown or after three months of lockdown. It's your program has stopped. No outside staff or volunteers are allowed in except for those who are correctional officers and people needed to maintain the uh, the running of the prison. But all program volunteers have stopped. All teachers have stopped coming in. And you are left with nothing but your thoughts and your worries about contracting coronavirus, your worries that your loved ones or your family members outside might contract coronavirus, and nothing to help you get through this. In the meanwhile, drugs are very rampant in many jails and prisons. So it's not that you're sitting there and there is not uh, the ability to access drugs while you are in jail or prison to help alleviate these fears. So what little supports people are given or what little opportunities to participate in drug treatment or drug programs, however not helpful they might be, are torn away. And at the same time, there is still the pervasive presence of drugs in all of these places. Maya is, you know, because throughout your book, when I was reading it, your and Victoria's book, when I was reading it, I kept thinking about how it seemed like the type of people, liberal reformers who wanted to, and conservatives as well, who wanted to replace prisons with house arrest and monitoring. It seemed like they understood the problem of prisons as a structure, but they didn't understand the problem of imprisonment as a structure, if you will. Is the goal by such reformers, and is this a distraction by anybody who's seeking prison reform, is the goal to alleviate any complicity we may feel in allowing for harsh prison incarceration to exist? Is that why we're just trying to, is this an attempt to erase prisons but allow imprisonment to stay intact? Yeah, I think that that's a good description of reform in general. Like the idea that, okay, there's a problem. 
So how can we address this problem in the most surface way while leaving the underlying structures intact, the underlying oppressions intact, and in many cases, expanding the number of people who are caught in the net of this problem. So I'm not saying that everyone who advocates these types of prison reforms has this evil agenda, but that this has been the effect of reform throughout history. And part of it is a kind of hesitation at the idea of massive structural change and a lack of imagination. One of the people we interviewed, Rachel Herzing, who was a co-founder of the prison abolitionist organization, Critical Resistance, said one of the major stumbling blocks in making these kinds of necessary transformations is a lack of imagination. <laughs> and I think that that's so true when we talk about, okay, how can we think beyond reform? It's, it's something that takes a real stretch of the imagination. Because these systems have been in place for so many years, we have to think about how prison is not just about prison. It was founded on colonialism. It was founded on slavery. It was founded on capitalism. So all of these are the structures that drove prison. And in order to really uproot it, we have to talk, talk about uprooting the structures. And I think one of the things that Vicky and I draw upon in the book is the fact that prison itself began as a reform. So it evolved in the 18th century as an alternative to physical punishment and capital punishment. And it was the kinder and gentler way of punishing people instead of killing them or chopping off their arms. We were saying, okay, what you do is you put people in this institution of confinement where they are forced to reflect and in terms of religious reformers forced to, you know, find God and make some sort of penitence. The origin of the word penitentiary is penitence. So, so that, that was a reform. It didn't challenge the underlying structures that were leading people into being punished in the first place, it was reforming punishment. And I think that's what we're seeing right now too, with many of these proposals is a reforming of the system in its own image. Well, so Victoria, let's just follow up on that. So mm -hmm. we keep uh, pursuing methods of punishment. In our history of prisons, does punishment work when it comes to making people not continue to be criminals, not be rearrested, not have recidivism? Does punishment work? And if it doesn't work, then why haven't we questioned the system of punishment? It doesn't work. I mean, if, punish, if, if the system of punishment worked, we would have in the United States, which has 2.3 million people behind bars, uh, mass uh, probation numbers of 3.6 million people. We have the highest probation rate in the world. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. That should mean the United States would be the safest country in the world. And as we see, it is not. Um, and that is because we are not addressing underlying issues. We have not built support systems in which people can survive and thrive in society. And instead, what we're doing is we are 
continually cutting away at what little social safety net the United States had provided to people who were most under-resourced, most under-resourced and most marginalized, and instead are replacing that with punishment. So if you are poor and you are, say, unable to afford daycare in your children, and you leave your children alone in a park or a McDonald's that you work at or someplace else, you can be arrested and charged with child abandonment or child neglect. If you are poor and you cannot afford drug treatment and you continue to use substances, you are arrested and confined and perhaps you are sentenced to prison because the judge thinks that you will not use drugs in prison or be able to access drug treatment, or you are sentenced to a uh, locked down drug treatment center. However, if you are richer, you can afford to check yourself in to the Betty Ford Clinic, where you are not locked in. You are not treated as if you are a prisoner. You are, you know, they actually try to address the root causes of your incarceration and they treat you like a human being. So what we're seeing is uh, all of our solutions look like punishment, they look like retribution. They look like uh, ways in which to further penalize people for not being a, for society's inability to meet their needs. Not only the that person's individual needs, but the community's needs. What happens? Why do we have areas that are low-income communities that have higher rates of arrests? Why do we have uh, areas that are mostly low-income Black and Brown neighborhoods? in cities where there are higher rates of arrest, higher rates of crime, and people don't have opportunities to do anything else. So what is happening in those neighborhoods? Do those neighborhoods have other opportunities for people to be able to survive and thrive? Or are the only opportunities for people to do anything, either dead-end jobs or activities that have been criminalized and that lead to arrest and imprisonment? Maya, you write that in 2009, as part of its Department of Homeland Security Appropriations Bill, Congress passed a mandate requiring U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE to maintain at least 34,000 beds in immigration jails each night, ensuring steadily high numbers of immigrants behind bars. You write about racial control through imprisonment. Prisons as site of control of immigrants that are now somehow swept up in the war on terrorism is is Homeland and ICE then part of yet another new layer, a new system of racialized control? Are the protests right now against the actions of Homeland Security, whether those are in Minneapolis or wherever, and those of uh, ICE? Are these protests against a new level of racialized control? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we need to look at these systems not as separate and not as isolated in terms of how they interact with racial control, but as like all a, a part of a larger system built on white supremacy. And we know, of course, that prisons evolved out of slavery. Many people have seen the documentary, the 13th, about the 13th Amendment and all of the ways in which the prison that we know today is actually in part traceable back to the institution of slavery. But also 
prisons and policing emerged out of other institutions of white supremacy. So one of the things that we talk about in our book as we connect policing and prisons and, and their evolution and how many of these alternatives actually fall under this rubric as well, policing and prisons evolved out of indigenous genocide. So many of the original police were actually vigilantes who were participating actively in indigenous genocide. They evolved out of vigilantes policing the border. So the Texas Rangers participated in both indigenous genocide and kind of an early form of border policing and targeting Mexicans and all of these things. So these institutions are, are tied together. I think that ICE is, is absolutely part of this larger whole. And when we talk about immigration detention, I think we have to look at that also as jail at, at Truthout, our style guide we, we call detention centers the immigration jails, you know, because we want to recognize this as a component of a larger system of white supremacy and racial control. And in our book, we draw this back to the alternatives that, that we discussed. So, for example, with electronic monitoring, one of the most blatant examples of its expansion relates to immigration and we see that 38,000 immigrants approximately are shackled by electronic monitors on any given day. And that number is growing and growing. And meanwhile, the increase in immigrants who are placed on monitors has not substantially decreased the number of people who are locked in detention centers or immigration jails. And so it's really an Expansion. It's an expansion of the control of immigrants. It's a an expansion of the control of marginalized people in general. And the system is just reaching its tentacles further and further out. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to do in our book is look at the very, very wide range of systems that are all interlocked and all built on these racist and capitalist foundations. So that it's not just about eliminating prisons. It's not even just about eliminating policing. It's about looking at those undergirdings. And this is why we covered such a wide range of different systems in our book. We look at how some of the systems of social work and some of the systems involved in our medical industrial complex are tied up with the same racist foundations that, that prisons are built on. We look at how mental health treatment institutions, as you mentioned earlier, grew out of some of, some of those same roots and continue to kind of reproduce systems of white supremacy. So I think that this is kind of, it's kind of a challenge to, to think about how all of these interlaced institutions need to be need to be questioned but it's also essential because one of the things that young black abolitionist organizers are are calling us to do right now is 
to challenge the way in which all major U.S. institutions are built on structures of racism, that this country was founded upon slavery and indigenous genocide. And so really in all of our institutions and in our book, we talk about schools quite a bit as well. We need to be looking, looking at those underlying causes and also looking at how they manifest just on a day-to-day basis. And so right now when organizers are challenging school policing, they're not just challenging the presence of uniformed officers in schools, but they're also challenging the way that racism is, is baked into the operation of our school system. One last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Maya Shenwar in Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. You can follow Maya on Twitter at Maya Shenwar, and you can find out more about Maya at her website, Maya Shenwar. Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find out more about at booksthroughbarsnyc.org. And you can follow Victoria on Twitter at L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L, L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. Find out more about Victoria at her website, victorialaw.net. One last question for each of you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Victoria. You write, the image of the prison industrial complex brings to light the web of punitive systems targeting people who are marginalized by race, class, gender identity, disability, or immigration status, and who are considered to be simply a surplus to society. It's what Henry Giraud has called on our show many times, the disposable part of our society. Mm -hmm. What is the impact on our humanity when we have this sense of humans who are a surplus, who are disposable, for those who, like yourself or me, who are absolutely opposed to this kind of system, sickened by it, and for you, a person who works hard to abolish it, how does unavoidable public complicity within a system that is out of our control affect the way that we view humanity? Does our prison system make us all, to some degree, a little bit more inhumane? Yes, it does. It tells people that we can dispose of problems by locking them into a somewhere else, whether it be a jail, a prison, an immigration center, a lockdown treatment center, uh, someplace away from us rather than addressing uh, community safety and community needs. And what it does is it says some people, particularly people who are black, brown, low-income, Uh, otherwise marginalized by their gender identity or their sexual orientation or anything else are just problems that should just go somewhere else. And we are, uh, we as an American society are very good at allowing solutions to be posited as let's just put people elsewhere. Let's get them out of the streets, out of the communities and away from us rather than saying what happened here and what harms have happened and what are the needs of everybody who are involved. So yes, I think it does chip away at our humanity and makes us less accountable to each other. 
Maya, how much do you fear that the outcome of the uprising against racialized police violence will be the kinds of reforms that take justice in the wrong direction, despite any good intentions of the reformers? To what degree do you fear that it's just going to be more of the liberal kind of reforms of continued punishment, continued surveillance, and things like house arrest and monitoring? How much, how much fear do you have that that's going to be the outcome of the protests against the murder of George Floyd? I'm actually really hopeful in this moment, which I hardly ever say. But thank God, the by the way, just thank you, of... thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> but really, you know, the demand that organizers are currently issuing to defund the police, I think, is a fundamentally non-reformist demand. It's it's a demand that calls us not only to reduce the size and reduce the scope of the prison and policing system, which of course extends to all these other reforms that we've discussed, but it's also calling for a massive reprioritization of society. It's calling for us to invest both with money and with kind of our, our humanity and our approach to society in life-affirming priorities like housing, like education, like healthcare and mental health care, like the arts and recreation and programs for youth, particularly in Black communities and other marginalized communities. And so to me, these calls are actually revolutionary. They're not saying, okay, we should replace police with so-called community policing, or we should replace police with private police. Now, those calls are coming from politicians in response to these uprisings. Certainly, we see mainstream politicians calling for many of the reforms that Vicki and I describe in our book. But we also see a vast number of organizers immediately pushing back on those reform demands, saying, no, we're not looking for community policing, which is a system that has been shown to actually grow the size of police departments and increase violence toward marginalized communities. We're, we're seeing organizers call that out very publicly. And we're actually seeing some cities, at least in part, capitulate to the demand, at least reducing the amount of funding for police departments, if not actually making moves toward dismantling them. So I'm not saying this is a straight path toward complete transformation, and I know that's not true, but I'm really taking heart in the work of organizers in this current moment, and I think it's an opening for us to really, really shift and transform the way that society operates. Well, I truly appreciate all the work that both of you have been doing for many, many years now when it comes to justice reform. We have been speaking with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. You can hear our past interviews with Victoria Law at our website, thisishell.com. Unfortunately, Maya was on in 2014, and that was the year of our huge hard drive crash, so we're trying to still put that interview 
you back up online. We have it. We have the interview. We just have to get it up online. So thank you both very much for being on the show. This is a great book. And again, listeners, we have only skimmed the very, very surface of this book, Prison by Any Other Name. you got to go check this book out because they talk about things like prison abolition and how that can kind of work. So thank you very much, both of you, for being back on our show. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Take care, Vicki. Thank you, Chuck. Take care, Maya. Take care. Thanks. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Captooth Radio Show podcast. Live stream host Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Or do you want to just skip that and nah, do this? I got you. We're good. Okay. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? John T. says, reminiscing about the idyllic mono-pandemic days of 2020 <laughs> when plywood was still plentiful. Oh. Mike M. says, goal ceiling, administering, administering psychedelics to hospice patients. Goal floor, still alive, eating more food from my garden. All right. Adam A, Adam A. says, fake answer, going full year zero on a bunch of bungalow bigots. <laughs> Real answer, probably just leaving Chicago again. Rage driving, racism, and speaking fluent a-hole are just not acceptable long-term realities. <laughs> That's nice. Dribal Yarn says, the void. Okay. Where do you see yourself in five years? Scott W. says, wearing a This Is Hell face mask. Yep. Austin H. says, on the moon's penal colony. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo M. says... In Which the, sounds more fun than it is. In, Ronaldo M. says, in the kitchen, making pasta fissure. <laughs> Alan G says mining lithium in the asteroid belt for Elon Musk. And finally Louis D says having my first drink at a bar. What do I win? Hey, uh, you know what? This answer is actually defended against the answer of your mom. You can't answer this question, your mom, can you? Where do uh, you see yourself in five years? Your yeah, mom? Yeah, well, uh, give Pete a try. Probably <laughs> exactly. I want to have a your mom-proof question. Uh, so, again, email us your answer to Chuck at this is hell.com, Alex at this is hell.com. Post it on Facebook, DM it via Twitter. But we have to have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. That's when we announce the winner. This week during the Moment of Truth, Jeff loads 16 tons. Thanks to CH for going to this is hell.com and showing your support. And thanks to Evan for signing up as our newest Patreon patron. Evan will now have access. Access to this Friday's and every Friday's exclusive Patreon podcast just for subscribers. Thanks to everyone who supports This Is Hell. Without your help, completely listener-supported This Is Hell would not exist. So thanks, and we're putting that money towards good use. We are going to be hiring a programmer to rebuild our archives so you can hear things like our 2014 interview with Maya Shenoir. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show? Uh, live from Johannesburg, William Shockey, writer from Africa as a Country, will be on to talk about neoliberalism, COVID-19 pandemic, and ruling class politics in South Africa. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin loads 16 tons. So uh, not Johannesburg, Ohio. Awesome. Is there one? I think so. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Victoria and Maya for being our guests. Thanks to Alex with my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>